You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Good morning, America. I'm Pete Mecca, your host for a veteran story on AmericasWebRadio.com. My guest today is my friend and brother from Vietnam, Mr. John Butler. John served as artillery forward observer with the 11th Armored Cavalry Regiment and later during his tour of Vietnam as the battalion fire direction officer for the 94th Heavy Artillery Battalion. Heavy Artillery. Welcome to the show, John. How is your hearing? I can't hear you. Just kidding. Everything's <laughs> great. It's good to be it's good to be with you, Pete, and with our audience today. It's good to be here. Thank you for the opportunity. Well, thank you for joining, John. I appreciate it. Uh, we've been on each other for a long time. Uh, let, let's start with the basics, John. Uh, we'll get to Vietnam in a little bit, but where did you grow up and go to school and all that kind of good stuff as a young man? I'm still working on growing up, but uh, <laughs> theoretically, I theoretically I, I, I was born and, and grew up in Pittsburgh, Kansas, southeast Kansas, just across the state line from Joplin, Missouri. And um, uh, my mom and dad both grew up in that area. Um, my, uh, of course, they were from the World War II generation. Every every brother in, in my mom's family and every brother in my dad's family served in World War II. My dad worked on the railroad, which was considered a national defense position, uh, a very critical role. So he did not serve in the military, but all of his brothers did. So there were about, I guess, six of my uncles also all served in um, in World War II. Um, so that's how, that's kind of the culture at that time, or how I grew up. Yeah, uh, that was the greatest generation. I know all my uh, father's men served, uh, you know, all his relatives, male relatives, some of the women too, and same thing on my mother's side. Um, wasn't like Vietnam, though. Hi. Right. Uh, what, as a young man, what did you even know about Vietnam? Well, I really, I, you know, my, I graduated from high school in 63, and um, and there wasn't any, really much of anything uh, that I was even aware of, of a war in Southeast Asia or anything. But when I went to college, um, you know, it was the college I went to was actually in Pittsburgh. It was Kansas State College of Pittsburgh, now called Pittsburgh State University. And um, ROTC was was just part of the deal. First, for two years, you had to take ROTC as Army ROTC. And so in 64, 65, it was pretty well known there was a war going on in, in Southeast Asia. And it turned out it was in Vietnam, which I never had, had ever heard of. But it became obvious to me um, that I was going to go to Vietnam. I just knew I was. Didn't particularly want to, but I knew I was going to go. So when it came time to make a decision, I stayed in ROTC, went to advanced ROTC, and spent all four years so that when I graduated, I would have a commission as a second lieutenant. I figured if I'm going to go to Vietnam, I might as well go as an officer rather than an yeah. man. So that was, just, that was as deep as my thinking went, and there was no other option as far as ROTC except Army. So by default, I was an Army second lieutenant when I graduated. I graduated okay. in uh, sixty in sixty eight. Actually, uh, took me an extra semester because variety of reasons, and I um, had hours toward my master's degree at that point. Um, so I uh, got my commission and requested a delay of active duty to 
to work on my master's, and the Army actually gave me a, a delay. It was longer than I anticipated, like a year. And so by the time I actually served, on, went on active duty in February of 70, um, I was already, uh, had served a, a year and a half as in what they considered active serve. Which I didn't have any idea that would be that would happen. So I got over I got over two pay, in like six months after I started in active duty. So anyway, that's that's how that got started. Well, let me ask you that that's interesting. Um, you graduated in '68. That's right around the Tet area, Tet '68. Uh, at your college, was there already a uh, uh, against the war movement, a peace movement, and how did that affect you in college? No, we 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 really, you know, Pittsburgh, Kansas, it's the Midwest, it's pretty conservative. We didn't really have anything like that going on there, um, which is really kind of the reason I think I was so taken aback when I came back from Vietnam. I'm jumping ahead now, uh, is I really had not experienced any anti-war protests face to face so um, I just I was just doing my duty I just it was as simple as that I really didn't even consider anything other than doing my duty and um, so uh, when I finally did get my uh, orders my orders um, were for six I ended up uh, working teaching teaching uh, math and and related science in a um, tech school while I was finished my master's degree, and I ended up um, uh, finally going on active duty in February '68, February '70, because I had the one-year delay, and then another six months from the time I got my my orders, I was actually given a lot more time than I anticipated. Um, so, um, so my first assignment was, uh, of course, I was an artillery. I was a my branch that was chosen basically for me was an art, field artillery. So my first assignment was at Fort Sill, Oklahoma, uh, for the. Was that was that your course. first choice, John? Did you get a choice, John, or were they just assigned you to artillery? Well, I was I was given a choice of um, infantry, armor, or artillery. I think were the three options, and then I could put a second choice in there or a third choice. But I knew that it wouldn't matter what my second or third choice was, so I did choose artillery over infantry or off or. Um, Armor and part of it was because of the I was kind of I was a math major and it was kind of, I knew there was a lot of mathematics involved in artillery so I was kind of drawn to that. Was that your master's in math? Yes. Yeah. Yes. It would have been I computer mean, science I, I, if if they had if they had that degree. Then it was actually what they call applied mathematics. And my master's my thesis was involving computer utilization and all, but it was kind of before the era of actual computer science degrees. It was actually considered applied mathematics. Okay, uh, and I have trouble balancing my checkbook. I need to talk to you. <laughs> well, right. I, I, I didn't major, listen, I didn't major in arithmetic, so just... <laughs> <laughs> okay, you're at Fort Sill, Oklahoma for your training in artillery. Tell us a little bit about your training. Well, we, we had a primary... Uh, primary instructor we had a lot of a lot of different classes and instructions and it was sort of like an applied college with field exercises i mean it was it was much a lot of classroom we did a lot of uh we you know there's four there's three aspects to artillery there's the observation and being careful to know how you actually adjust fire uh 
there's the guns themselves and how to operate and, and maintain the equipment. And then there's uh, fire direction control, which is very complicated um, and at the time, certainly, probably even more so now, but it's probably more automated. But, uh, but you have to determine the powder temperature, uh, the height of the projectile, the wind direction, philosophy, and so on, of every uh, aspect of the flight of the projectile. I mean, it's very complicated. So it's fascinating, frankly. Um, so our primary instructor was a Marine captain, and he was sharp as a tack. I mean, he was just, everything about him was completely buttoned up. I was really impressed with him. So it was a 13-week, uh, pretty intense course, and uh, during that time I was able to, uh, my wife, my ex-wife now, but my wife at the time was pregnant with our first child. So we would get off at noon on Saturday and have to be back at midnight Sunday night, and I would drive home to Manhattan, Kansas, which was a six-hour drive. Uh, I would leave at noon on Saturday, get home at 6 o'clock Saturday evening, and then leave at 6 o'clock Sunday evening and drive back. Um, so that was the almost every weekend I did that. Wow. What uh, what artillery pieces did you train on in Fort Sill? Well, that was all. All we did was 105 split trail, just the old, the old fashioned uh, 105 uh, howitzers is what we trained on. Well, okay, that's that's interesting because I know that you dealt with other uh, artillery in Vietnam. Did just the training on a 105 millimeter basically train you for any kind of artillery? Well, it gives you enough understanding of what it takes to actually uh, operate a, 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 an artillery piece. That when you get involved in another piece, it's it's not. I mean, you have to learn that specific the characteristics of that piece of equipment. But but you learn basically all the aspects you need to know then to to know what to learn to operate appropriately on the other thing. So my first assignment when I got my orders uh, out of Fort Sill, I knew I was going to go to Vietnam. I was absolutely a hundred percent certain, and uh, I just didn't know if I was going to go to Vietnam first. And then, uh, then a stateside assignment for my second assignment, or a stateside assignment, and then Vietnam. I just knew that's what it was going to be. And sure enough, about ninety plus percent of my classmates uh, that graduated when I with I with with me went to Vietnam. My orders were for Germany, which really huh. threw me off. Um, and so, um, but the first uh, the first assignment in Germany was actually um, eight inch self propelled howitzers. Uh, which is the same chassis as the 175 millimeter gun that we end up. I was in in the assignment in Vietnam, so it's the same piece of equipment. The only difference is the the tube and the breech is uh, a different for the for the eight inch versus the 175. But um, but when I went to Germany, I was the battalion recon and survey platoon leader, and uh, that was had nothing to do really with being on the equipment itself. Did, did, I, I did not know you went to Germany. How long were you in Germany? Uh, well, amazingly enough, thirty days to the day after I arrived in Germany, <laughs> I got orders. I got orders for Vietnam, um, <laughs> and it was and it it really upset me. Not only because of having to go to Vietnam, which I wasn't all keen on, but I had rearranged my life really to 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 go to Germany. I had. Re- Set everything up in my life to go to Vietnam. I had my wife and I had bought a, a new mobile home 
because I didn't have any idea where my base assignment, when I was stateside base assignment, where that would be and what kind of housing would be available. Um, I had a, had a truck, a uh, pickup truck and a trailer to hold, you know, I was, I was just set up for a stateside assignment for her when I was in Vietnam and for both of us when I was stateside assigned, which I knew I was going to be assigned at a, some kind of a base in the U.S. And then I got orders to Vietnam, so I sold everything and <laughs> put things in storage to go to Vietnam, and I'm, almost immediately I bought a new Volkswagen like all you know, like everybody did when they went to go to Germany. Yeah. I took, deli- took, took, took delivery on the Volkswagen, and like a, less than a week later got my orders to Vietnam. So it was really, really disruptive to my life. And, uh, and then yeah, two yeah, weeks after I got my orders, two weeks after I got my orders, a brand-new second lieutenant right out of Fort Sill came to my unit and replaced me. <laughs> that, that's that's. I guess a lot of folks will say, "Yeah, that's typical army." I mean, you go to uh, Germany in thirty days, you get orders to go to war. That, that's great. <laughs> well, right. you know, in retrospect, yep. I, I mean, I enjoyed I enjoyed what time I was in Germany, but I really was really was planning. I would just as soon have gone straight to Vietnam, and uh, yeah. you know. Uh, <laughs> anyway. Right, I will tell fine. you, when, when the battalion commander at the end of my tour in Vietnam gave me the pep talk about re-upping, I said, no offense, Colonel, but if the Army, I told him what happened in Germany, I said, if any organization, no matter how big, if that's screwed up, they would do that. I had no interest <laughs> in spending any more time with him than I, than I had. <laughs> All right, John, that's great. We're going to our first break. Uh, folks, we'll be right back with uh, John Butler. Artillery officer uh, in Vietnam. Stay with us. If you live to serve and want to make an even bigger difference, consider joining the U.S. Army. With training in fields like medical care, linguistics, and engineering, an Army career can amplify your efforts with humanitarian opportunities all over the world. Plus, you'll receive competitive pay and incredible benefits, so you'll be taken care of, too. Learn more at GoArmy.com. Hi, this is Rocky Blair former four-time Super Bowl champion with the Pittsburgh Steelers and Vietnam veteran. As a board member, I'd like to talk to you about Warriors to Citizen, a nonprofit organization that helps American heroes, soldiers, police, fire, EMT, and their families recover from the psychological harm caused by career-induced stress. Over the last 20 years, broken relationships have been a major causal factor for the highest document divorce rate and resulting suicides in this population. This program, from Warriors to Citizen, is delivered free to families by professionals, all whom served in uniform and understand the needs to be addressed. I ask for your support. So please, go to our website, warriorstocitizen.org, and find out how you can help, either by making a donation or sharing this information with an American hero that you may know. And thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls of all ages, join me, Roger B., every Tuesday at 1400 hours right here on America's Web Radio for the Locked and Loaded Show. We will talk about guns, weapons, ammo, gun accessories, prepping, and so much more. So be sure to join us every Tuesday at 1400 or 2 p.m. for Locked and Loaded on America's Web Radio. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Okay, folks, we're back with John Butler, artillery officer uh, in Vietnam. Uh, after serving in Germany for a long, long time there, a total of 30 days, he got his orders from Vietnam. 
Uh, John, when did you go to Vietnam? What year and month was that? Do you remember? Uh, yeah, I actually um, uh, went from went from Germany. I, I went back to the States. I had just bought a new Volkswagen. I had immediately uh, <laughs> got the orders for, Viet, for Vietnam, so I had to go have it shipped back. So I flew to um, somewhere. I think I flew to, anyway, I flew to the States, and I picked up the car and drove it back to uh Kansas, where my uh, wife was, my first child, our, our, our first daughter, was born when I was in Germany. Um, mm-hmm. In fact, she was born on Wednesday, and I got orders on Saturday, so that was really a nice break. <laughs> anyway, I got to I got to meet her and spend some time with her. We were I was home for about a week or so, I think, and then flew to Fort Lewis, Washington, and then um, and changed. This was in October of 1970. Um, and um, as soon as I got to Fort Lewis, um, I learned that everything I brought with me was going to be shipped back home in boxes. They gave me new jungle fatigues, jungle boots, and all that. And it was October in Fort Lewis, Washington. I mean, it was cold. <laughs> Whatever, what little acclimation to heat that I had gotten accustomed to completely went out the window. And then we flew to um, uh, through Anchorage, Alaska to... Um, uh, yeah, uh, somewhere in Japan, I forget now where it was, and then in the uh, uh, Saigon uh, area where we where we finally landed. And um, so it was the middle of October, early October of 1970. Um, and of course, I went to a um, I, I can't remember the Cameron Bay, maybe anyway. I was at a at a, a depot where you process. <clears throat> and as as guys know, you kind of. You know, I went individually. I didn't go with the unit, and so it was all kinds of rumors of what, where, what kind of assignment I would get. And and of course, the 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 standing joke was that the second lieutenant, field artillery officer, is going to be a forward observer. And uh, <laughs> yeah. the only thing, the only thing is, uh, I was told you did not want to be with the Eleventh Armored Cav because the Eleventh Armored Cav, their mission, their their slogan was find the bastards and pile on they are looking for trouble so go with any other organization besides the 11th cab and of course my first assignment was with the 11th Harvard cab and of course <laughs> i was assigned to be a forward observer so <laughs> all right go, go ahead and tell us perfectly. about that yeah go ahead and tell us about being a forward observer and what you did where you went and um, the balls in your court well, I, you know, I, I was I, I was, took a um, a jeep uh, first in a bus to um, the area was uh, around Zeon, which was that was the base camp for the 11th Army, at least for the battalion that I was in. Uh, I was in the I was assigned to A Troop um, of the first battalion, A Troop first of the 11th, they called it, and our headquarters was in Zeon and. Um, but nobody was there except the base camp and all of the the units worked as a troop size or a company size unit and they were all in different areas throughout the that military region three mostly and um so i got there i got my uh had my duffel bag with my gear and they put me on a jeep and sent me to uh meet up with my crew so basically a, a forward observer with a troop size unit company size unit had a, a, a track vehicle with a track commander which is typically a e5 or a spec 5 
a driver and then two machine gunners that would sit on the sides, and I would sit in the middle behind the, the, the TC. So it was my crew to support our you know, our operation of whatever we were doing. So um, I was supposed to meet up with these guys, um, and there was a predetermined location where that was going to happen. So I got in the Jeep, and there was a trailer. And the guy that was driving, uh, I don't think he had a driver's license in the States. I don't know <laughs> if he got one in the military or not. But So we're driving on the, on the I guess it was the, uh, Highway 1. It was a paved two-lane road, and there was a fairly wide shoulder on each side. And there were four of us, the driver, a guy in the front seat, and then two in the back. And I was in the back on the right side, on the passenger side. And the driver, as I said, we're pulling a trailer with our duffel bags in it and our gear. And so the driver decides to pass this truck. There's a deuce and a half full of uh, Korean soldiers, rocks we call them, straight straight shooting guys. I mean, they they were terrific soldiers. And for some reason, this guy decided to pass this truck. So he gets sideways next to the truck, halfway around the truck, and the truck decides to pass whatever vehicle's in front of the truck. And so he pulls over in our lane, and I'm sitting there in the back, and I'm seeing the back wheels of this truck coming and about to kiss me. And the driver realizes that we're not going to go anywhere, so the, the, the wheels of the truck scrape the side of the Jeep right by my face. The driver of my Jeep pulls over on the shoulder, does not slow down. Here we go, bumpity-bumpity down the shoulder at whatever speed we're going. He's not slowing down. There's this huge gravel pile in front of us, and he's not <laughs> slowing down. And so he decides to go back into the highway where the truck is, but the truck's still there. So that causes a, a, a impact that throws this Jeep out of control, and this Jeep goes spinning every which way you can imagine. The trailer goes one way, the Jeep goes another. We end up flying around backwards and sliding down into the ditch on the opposite side of the road we're supposed to be in and come to a crashing halt in this ditch with the ground now six inches from my face. And I'm thinking, now this is a heck of a note. I'm going to be in Vietnam for about a day and get killed in a traffic accident. Now, how, how <laughs> ironic is that? <laughs> so anyway, they <laughs> nobody was hurt. We crawled out of the ditch. We, we went and retrieved our gear. We strewn all, all up and down the highway and got it back together again. Back. And then we ended up going to meet up with my guys, and they were waiting where they were supposed to be. And I had... Um, uh, um, had uh, my, you know we met up we spent the night there and then took the our uh, track to the group which was out in the jungle um, they knew how to find us so so I joined my group my rest of my troop and met the um, the, the, the uh, troop commander um, who was a West Point graduate Mike McClary was mm-hmm. his name real sharp guy really nice guy um, he was an he was an armor officer and uh, we got to be pretty good friends actually. And as you as you probably remember, when you were in Vietnam, Pete, um, at least in where we were, nobody we didn't junior grade officers, captains, lieutenants uh, did not call each other sir or salute each other. We just we were just called each other by our first names. In fact, my crew uh, they called me Fo, just Fo, F O, forward little folk. And so, and we lived together. I mean, we we slept in the same vehicle. We slept inside that that metal box. Um, you know, we were there. We were together seven days a week, uh, three hundred sixty-five days a year, or you know, hmm. uh, twenty-four hours a day. So, um, 
so our job would be to whatever mission we were on, we would support the troop commander. And so we were set up in a night defensive position. One of my jobs was to call in night defensive. Um, we were in a night defensive position. We would call in um, DEFCON, they call it Def- defensive concentrations, and adjust artillery file, fire around our perimeter so that if we d- got into a serious attack, we would already have um, uh, adjusted fire to call in without having to worry about adjusting fire. And really, we never actually, I actually never did have to call in artillery strikes with the 11th Cav because the, the firepower in our unit was ferocious. Uh, we had uh, Sheridan tanks, uh, light aluminum tanks with six-inch main guns, uh, every vehicle had at least three machine guns, and then we all carried our own weapons. And um, and our perimeter was was pretty secure. We did get incoming uh, artillery, rockets, that sort of thing at night, which was uh, upsetting, dangerous, frustrating. Um, but uh, but it was nothing you would fire artillery on. So um, I finally, after a few weeks, stopped calling in. Defcons at night, just because uh, I realized that if we had a, if we had a, um, uh, and then you know an attack, uh, we would either completely take care of the attack ourselves, or I would have time if that happened to actually call in artillery. I did keep track, of course, of where we were and where our call signs and locations of the batteries, the the artillery batteries that supported wherever we were but we traveled around a lot we didn't really spend much time in any location except for uh, night defensive positions we would stay for usually a few days and then move move to the next place so that's basically okay, we so, go on so, dismounts yeah go ahead okay no go ahead uh, so you moved around well, i'm saying we would we, we would do we could do we would do some reconnaissance runs sometimes the the troop commander would would take me and my crew and maybe one other, uh, um, maybe a, a, a platoon leader or something, and we would go on a dismount. Uh, I mean, a, I'm sorry, a uh, a recon uh, for the day and go around and check areas around where we were. Sometimes we would we would do dismounts where we would uh, if we saw an interesting area that might be uh, might have uh, uh, tunnels or or some kind of a, we would get out we would get out and 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 hike, um, carry M-16s, you know, and hike through the woods, play, uh, play Boy Scout and look for things. It sounds like a great way to get ambushed, too. <laughs> yeah, well, uh, you know, we... The thing about jump, that right? crew, though, the, the, the 11th Cav, uh, I mean, my my crew, I mean, like I said, I finished my master's before I went on, you know, on active duty, so I was 25 years old. I was old. Oh, you hear old, old man. Yeah. Yeah, I was. My career were teenagers. They were just kids. Huh. But but there, but there there was a a esprit de corps. There was a we we trusted each other and we knew we could trust each other. We, we had a very high morale. Um, even though none of them really wanted to be there, um, they weren't nuts. You know, like bayonet in your teeth kind of thing. They just were doing their jobs, and they were remarkably mature for being as young as they all were. Um, and I really depended on them, and they depended on we depended on each other. So that part of my experience was very gratifying. 
I said, war will make you grow up very fast. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. <laughs> All right, John, we are going to our second break. We'll be right back with John Butler, artillery officer in Vietnam, about his second assignment in Vietnam. Stay with us, folks. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls of all ages, join me, Roger B., every Tuesday at 1400 hours right here on America's Web Radio for the Locked and Loaded Show. We will talk about guns, weapons, ammo, gun accessories, prepping, and so much more. So be sure to join us every Tuesday at 1400 or 2 p.m. for Locked and Loaded on America's Web Radio. Hi, this is Rocky Blair, former four-time Super Bowl champion with the Pittsburgh Steelers and Vietnam veteran. As a board member, I'd like to talk to you about Warriors to Citizen, a nonprofit organization that helps American heroes, soldiers, police, fire, EMT, and their families recover from the psychological harm caused by career-induced stress. Over the last 20 years, broken relationships have been a major causal factor for the highest document divorce rate and resulting suicides in this population. This program, from Warriors to Citizen, is delivered free to families by professionals, all whom served in uniform and understand the needs to be addressed. I ask for your support. So please, go to our website, warriorstocitizen.org, and find out how you can help, either by making a donation or sharing this information with an American hero that you may know. And thank you. This is America's Web Radio. Would you like to have a show, talk about your business, or express your opinion on America's Web Radio? Just email gm at americaswebradio.com and we'll get back to you. Thank you. Okay, folks, we're back at John Butler, artillery officer in Vietnam. He served the first part of his tour as artillery forward observer with the 11th Armored Cavalry Regiment. John, tell us about your second uh, part of your tour in Vietnam. So the um, the 11th Cav, uh, this was this was now early 1971, and the 11th Cav was uh, was getting ready to uh, disengage from Vietnam and send the unit, was, with the colors would be, be going back to the States. Most, if not all, of our equipment was going to stay and, and be turned over to the Arvins uh, to use. So we had to clean everything up. But um, we spent about a week at our base camp in Zeon, which is the only second, only the second time I actually saw that location from the time I was in the unit, um, and got our, our equipment cleaned up. And the S-1, uh, the battalion S-1, I kind of think it was the captain or a lieutenant. I think it was a lieutenant. Um, he and I knew each other well enough. He was he was trying to do me a favor, and he said um, that he was going to uh, assign me to a heavy artillery battalion up on the uh, in the military region one, uh, based in Da Nang. He said, "Man, you'll have concrete sidewalks and hot showers. It'll be great." Um, so I thought that sounds great. So that sure enough, that's where they assigned me, and I flew up there uh, on the Chinook, uh, landed. They got I got a, a hitched a ride to the base camp, and damn, sure enough, I got to the base camp. There were plywood buildings, uh, there were concrete sidewalks. Uh, 
uh, battalion S3 was a major, and um, he he greeted me, and I said, uh, Major, I said that it's good to be here and all, but where is everybody? We said, let me show you on the map. And so we went into this this briefing room, and there was a map on the wall. I thought it was eight feet wide, um, and it was of the DMZ, um, and there was the the uh, Gulf on the right side and the Laotian border on the left side. And he went over to the map, and he, uh, you know, an inch or two below the DMZ, and I mean on the Laotian border. He pointed his finger, and he said, that's where we are. And that's where you're going. Um, welcome to the second, the ninety fourth. <laughs> and I happened to notice uh, everyone knew about Kason. Of course, it was this was the this was had the, the, the siege at Kason. had happened, you know, a year or so before that, so it was over yeah. with. But it had a you know there was an ominous ring to it, and sure enough, Kason was quite a bit to the right. <laughs> Of where our unit was. I mean, we were literally you could throw a rock over the ocean water. So I got a ride out to the to the base, and uh, that's where the the uh, I was assigned as the battalion fire direction officer, which means that the each battery there were four firing batteries in a battalion. Each battery had their own fire direction center, and uh, a lieutenant and a, a crew that would calculate firing data, and then the the battalion. Fire Direction Center would would get targets, allocate the targets to the targets of the batteries, and verify data. So we had four uh, RTO slash uh, Fire Direction um, enlisted guys that would calculate data and verify the firing data uh, that was being fired by the guns. So this is a one seven five bat battalion. So there were four firing. Uh, firing guns in each. Uh, these were um, considered guns rather than howitzers because of the length of the barrel, the, the trajectory, and all that. Um, Those were the long toms. Yeah, long toms. They were. They would fire over twenty miles, as I recall. They, it, it used a hundred pounds of powder uh, to to send the projectile on its way, and um, the stress on the tube was so enormous that the tube was only good for, initially, it was a few hundred, like 300 rounds. And then they, they had some treatment that they um, pressurized oil or something. They treated the tube and increased it to like 1,500 rounds, uh, what they call e, e equivalent full, range, full charge EFC, I think they call it. And then they had to change out the tube because the stress on it would cause the tube to, to fail. Um, so, um, But when those things went off, I mean, it absolutely the very earth and, and um, it was amazing how how incredibly loud they were and they of course the battalion fire direction center was located in the middle of one of the firing batteries uh, we had a uh, someone had taken a, a small bulldozer and dug a trench for a van type truck to park down in the trench so the radios uh, the fire direction center itself was the was basically the back of a radio truck and um, our guys would sit inside the truck, and basically I would sit outside the truck, um, you know, uh, during the time. We basically served eight hours, I mean, 12 hours on, 12 hours off. <coughs> so, uh, um, now, you said a battery of, of 175s. Those things were massive. They, they were 
like you said, over 20 miles in range, but you are close to the Laotian border, and, you know, I've dealt with the Laotian uh, war quite a bit, and folks don't realize there was a hell of a war going on over there. Did you get shelled very much, John? Well, we actually did. We we were well within range of the NVA artillery, and we never got any ground attack from the NVA, but we knew they were close by, and we did get uh, fairly often um, uh, incoming from what turned out to be NVA artillery. And uh, uh, we didn't really have... We were set up to protect ourselves, but we... Um, we really did not have uh, or, or have anybody to call on if we had if we did get a, a ground attack. I will tell you, I was a lot more frightened there than I was with the 11th Cav. The 11th Cav, we looked for contact all the time. We had, we were in a lot more firefights, but we were buttoned up. I mean, we we took care of each other. This was a very different environment. Um, when I was officer of the day, officer of the guard, walking the perimeter at night. Uh, it was not unusual to find um, guys asleep in their foxholes that were supposed to be in our, guarding our perimeter. Um, uh, it was it was frightening. Um, and then we we had and someone uh, assigned a, a, I believe it was a battery of there was actually four vehicles, air defense art, air defense artillery. There were two dusters, which is a forty millimeter twin cannon uh, self propelled uh, artillery uh, air defense artillery piece. Um, and then two um, quad 50, uh, five-ton trucks with quad 50s mounted on the back. And they were positioned strategically around our perimeter to augment our, our defense. Uh, and um, so they knew there was a danger there, um, so they did that, and they brought those guys in to do that. Um, they did not render, engender much confidence, however, because they were... Uh, the crews were, for some reason, racially segregated, and their um, their morale was in the in the shit house. I mean, I'm sorry, but it was not good. Um, so we really did not have a lot of confidence that, that we were secure in that uh, in that location. We were there for uh, at least a month, as I recall. Did uh, uh, I know that? <clears throat> The NBA, some of their artillery were in, like, mountain caves. They could come out and fire at you and go right back in. Do you know if you ever hit any of the NBA artillery? Yeah, so, yeah, so we, I mean, we did have the ability, I mean, not, we didn't. The 175s could fire, uh, you know, like, point blank. They could fire at low trajectory, but it really was, they really weren't designed for that. And so we did have, uh, we, we called in Cobra strikes a few times. We actually called in um, fast movers a couple of times that would come in and, and, and strike at the um, uh, the mountainsides where the caves were. And, and, and it, they did seem to have some effect. Um, at least one strike we had, uh, we, we stopped uh, any incoming for uh, about a week or so. So it had some effect, but uh, that was... <laughs> I got to tell you, when they came over our position, you could just about count the rivets on the bottom of these jets. And at the time, I thought, <laughs> man, it should be but should be nice to be up there rather than down here. <laughs> but of course, but of course, after Nam and I've met some POWs and stuff, I don't think that was a good idea either. So, 
No, they were they, those uh, those guys did a good job too, and they were vulnerable. Believe me. Uh, yeah, they did. For sure. They did. Uh, being in the Air Force, we lost a lot of good men, not only in Vietnam but over there in Laos. Uh, I didn't know if you knew yeah. this, John, but when we uh, signed the Paris Peace Accords. Uh, that covered our POWs in North Vietnam only. It did not cover any POWs in Laos or in South Vietnam. I read um, that. I I didn't know it at the time, but but that is shameful. That's absolutely shameful. But uh, yeah, I'm, it makes me sick to hear that. But I I already I knew that, but only be, probably because it was something I read that you you had created. But yeah, uh, I wasn't aware at the time. Yeah, there, there's a, 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 a several books out about that and. and this controversy about, well, did we leave anybody over there? The government says no, but Pete Mack will go out and yeah. say, yes, we did. Okay? Yeah. Um, yeah. And we'll leave it at that. So, all right, you're up there near the DMZ, and I think you're probably very lucky, young man, that you didn't get any kind of a ground attack up there. I, uh, wow, I can't believe yeah. it. Well, well wow. we, we, did have other, we did have other firing batteries, and, um, and the some of the uh, battalion command officers and, and uh, senior NGOs would would go from battery to battery in a jeep, and we we had several that didn't make it from one battery to another because oh. the road they traveled on was, was literally, you know, like I said, you could throw a rock over the border. So uh, we were close enough to that the, we we did lose some guys um, that were doing you know uh, going from battery to battery along the border where we that we served but um far, yeah was, uh, john john how far was it from each battery how long how far did they have to travel uh, well you know i never went from one battery to the other so uh, i mean i saw it on a map it wasn't very far i would say we were we were strung along the border not more than about um, you know in today's terms a mile or two apart it wasn't that far we supported the 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 Lam San 719 was the main operation we were supporting, and the and the uh, Arvins were were inserting into Laos, and we were there because we had the range. These 175s had such a long range, and we were supporting that the entire time they were there. And they fired. We fired 24 hours a day uh, the whole time we were there. So, Lam um, San 719. What a story that was. Uh, yeah. I've, I've talked to guys that are in the choppers, and they got shot down three times in one day. Uh, yeah, I'm not surprised. Wow. Yeah, that I'm was, not that surprised was either. All right, we'll, uh, we'll go into our last break here, John. We'll be back with John Butler, artillery officer in Vietnam, in just a few minutes. Stay with us, folks. If you live to serve and want to make an even bigger difference, consider joining the U.S. Army. With training in fields like medical care, linguistics, and engineering, an Army career can amplify your efforts with humanitarian opportunities all over the world. Plus, you'll receive competitive pay and incredible benefits, so you'll be taken care of, too. Learn more at GoArmy.com. Whether cruising the Strip in a 57 Chevy or taking the family on a vacation in a 71 Oldsmobile Vista Cruiser, you need to tune in to Classic Cars with Steve Ronaldo and Jim Weber every Saturday from 8 to 9 a.m. on AmericasWebRadio.com. Hi, this is Rocky Blair, former four-time Super Bowl champion with the Pittsburgh Steelers and Vietnam veteran. 
As a board member, I'd like to talk to you about Warriors to Citizen, a nonprofit organization that helps American heroes, soldiers, police, fire, EMT, and their families recover from the psychological harm caused by career-induced stress. Over the last 20 years, broken relationships have been a major causal factor for the highest document divorce rate and resulting suicides in this population. This program, from Warriors to Citizen, is delivered free to families by professionals, all whom served in uniform and understand the needs to be addressed. I ask for your support. So please, go to our website, warriorstocitizen.org, and find out how you can help, either by making a donation or sharing this information with an American hero that you may know. And thank you. Hello, I'm Dr. Mike Karuchak. Have you ever wondered what doctors talk about amongst themselves? If you do, join us on The Doctor's Lounge and hear the doctor's conversations amongst themselves. Join me and my co-host, Dr. Hal Schertz, every Thursday morning, 8 to 9 a.m. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. All right, folks, we're back with John Butler, artillery officer from Vietnam. John, uh, you saw a lot of action in Vietnam, but by 1970... Uh, the political situation was not good back in the States, and you came home to a very different country than when you left. What was it like coming home? Well, you know, I was, um, oddly enough, I was actually, uh, I think, mentally and emotionally prepared for the um, uh, the very challenging issues, the things I saw and experienced in Vietnam, I just was absolutely flat-footed when it came to the open hostility and vitriol uh, when I came home. And and it wasn't like my family, uh, it wasn't like that. It's just, first of all, nobody really knew how to deal with us. Um, I say us, with me. Um, And one of the things I thought about Really, only recently I realized one of the issues was I was supposed to be assigned to another unit when I came home. And I think that would have helped tremendously to have had been around uh, military people for even a few months. But instead, I mean, I literally, when I left Vietnam, I was discharged. I was a civilian. I landed in San Francisco and changed planes to an American Airlines flight. And and I it was obvious I was an army. I don't remember whether I had a uniform on or just looked like army. I, I I just remember the open hostility of walking through the airport, and I was just not prepared for that. Um, and it didn't. I didn't break down or do anything weird. It just affected me really deeply, and I didn't even realize how much it affected me until much later in my life. Um, when I realized that some of my relationships, including my marriage, uh, I believe were directly and dramatically impacted negatively by um, the by the uh, in, uh, ineffectiveness of handling that uh, that deep of a rejection, really. Um, mm-hmm. So, um, so I just like everybody else, like a lot of people I talk to, I didn't discuss it with anybody. There was no reason to talk to anybody about it. Uh, I didn't really know any other Vietnam veterans close enough to have any conversation with them. 
um, I ran into a couple of my high school buddies and that, that um, while I was in Vietnam, had gotten married, owned a home, had families, and some of them, you know, a child or two. I mean, it was just, it was, we were, in, we were from a different universe, almost. And um, there's, nothing, there's nothing to talk about. Basically, poured myself into work. Uh, I did know how to be effective at work. Um, not great at building relationships, but um, I was effective in work, and so that's that's what I focused on. And it was years, yeah. years, years afterwards before I actually had a conversation with anybody of any meaning whatsoever about uh, yeah. Vietnam because it just it just yeah. didn't, wasn't something you brought up. Yeah, I know. Been there and done that, John. I have uh, interviewed veterans who were fighting in the rice paddies one day, and then all of a sudden the next day, they're on the streets in San Francisco in civilian clothes trying to hail down a taxi. Uh, that, no transition. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. No transition and whatsoever. I, and, I, and, I've, and I've talked to some. I've talked to some guys that that came back, uh, and they they were in at least for a period of time, and. I'm not saying it was easy for them, but I just, I didn't, like I said, in retrospect, I think it would have been very helpful to at least have had a buffer, a transition time. Even if there was nothing overtly being done to help me make the transition, at least being around other, other soldiers uh, would yeah. have been, I think, would have been very helpful. Yeah. What was the, uh, when did you first talk with anyone about your experiences in Vietnam? Well, you know, um, there was one isolated situation um, that's not really worth discussing. I, I ran into a guy who um, uh, who seemed interested enough in my Vietnam experience to to give me a glimmer that you know what maybe it's not so shameful after all. So it just planted the seed, but that shit kind of came and went. Uh, but um, I was actually in the parking lot of an office building and. Um, Don Plunkett, who is a AVVA member, long-term, one of the original members of AVVA, uh, drove past me, and I was getting in my car, and I think I at that time had had a, either a sticker or a tag, my license tag, uh, and maybe just because I looked the age or something, he, he rolled the window down, he said, he asked if I was a Vietnam veteran, and I said, yes. And he said, I would, I'm a member of a group, of, and I'd like you to come to lunch with me someday. And I said, you know, I'm just not really, I just really don't have any interest in doing that. Um, he said, well, he said, just, he said, you don't know me, but just trust me enough to let me buy your lunch. And if you don't want to go back, that's fine. But it won't hurt you, and I'd like you to come. So I did, and I went into this room. There's like a 100 guys. And they're normal people. There's nothing weird about them. They're not all bearded, wearing fatigues, you know. And all of them, I found out very quickly, had actually served in Vietnam. And suddenly, I connected with people at a level that I did not, I didn't even know these guys. But there was a connection there that was profound. And it was so cathartic to me be around other Vietnam veterans, especially because they were, I realized, you know, these are people that have successfully re, regained their lives. They're doing fine, and they went through the same thing I did. And that was, and it has been a significant positive turn for me. It's not like I'm, I, I'm it's a big deal. 
that I went to Vietnam. I'm not better than anybody. It's just different. Um, and there is an experience that I can share. Even just hanging out with someone and talking about nothing about Vietnam, there is a depth of a connection, understanding that's impossible to describe unless you unless you've done it, which I know you have been. Yeah, now you're talking about the Atlanta Vietnam Veterans Business Association, which you and I are both members of. Uh, it, do you think that is probably the uh, the best catalyst for you coping with your Vietnam experiences? Oh yeah, that's that's that definitely um, has been a major factor in it. I mean, uh, before AVBBA, I did <clears throat> I did at my, my I have a cousin. Uh, who's a Vietnam veteran? He was a, he was an infantry. He was a grunt. He went a little bit, of, I think, a year ahead of me. And uh, he saw me go through a divorce, and and he knew me. We were close friends. We knew we were close, pretty close growing up. And he encouraged me, badgered me, really, to go to the VA and register with the VA. And um, and because of that, um, at, at one point, um, I did actually go to a psychiatrist at the VA, and I had, you know, one session was plenty for me. I didn't want to go back. But I was, but I was, but I was made aware that there were issues in my relational um, interfaces that were, that was damaged, and it, it helped me, my particular relationship with my son was pretty dysfunctional, um, for example, um, and it helped me realize that um, there was something in me that was causing, uh, you know, an inappropriate reaction to things, and that was the start of at least starting to deal with relationships more, more, um, uh, more uh, positively. But the AVVBA, the Atlanta Vietnam Veterans, that group—that's uh, the first time I actually felt I was part of something that was—it was deep enough to connect um, at a meaningful relationship, meaningful level with, and it was really—it has been very helpful to me. And, and, you know, and that, of course, is, has launched my interest in and the benefits of uh, serving other veterans, um, partly starting with the ABBBA and then um, the VEO, the Veterans Empowerment Organization, where I happen to be sitting today. Uh, serving right. other veterans has become uh, a way of uh, feeding something in my soul that is, that is meaningful and powerful. Um, so um, that's really, uh, to me, that's one of the best ways that uh, any veteran, um, and I guess particularly a Vietnam veteran, uh, can provide um, self-healing and therapy is to do positive things for another veteran, or what, regardless of where that veteran is. Right, and I understand that. I, I have uh, sat at a table at one of our meetings, and uh, a, a new guy. First time there, was sitting at the table, and he started talking to the guy next to him. And these guys ended up finding out that they were, I think, uh, up in I-Corps, and they had talked to each other on the radio during strikes as helicopter pilots. Never met each other, of course, but they remember their call signs and everything else. And there they were talking to each other. I could see the tears in in both of their eyes. They were so happy uh, to see each other. Uh, a great healing experience. Uh, how important is your involvement in the uh, VEO? That's the Veterans Empowerment Organization. Tell us a little bit about that. Well, the, <clears throat> the VEO serves veterans that that um, 
have not, uh, I mean, and I, I don't, I don't want to get started on something that will take too long, but, but frankly, I, I was positioned when I came home from Vietnam, uh, it wasn't that difficult. I, I had a bumpy ride, uh, but I was not that difficult for me to become a productive, self-sufficient member of society. But not every veteran comes back and, 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 and either currently or in the past and has that, uh, that ability or they're not positioned for it or they're not set up to do it. So veterans have really had struggle with that. Uh, maybe they're homeless or at risk of homelessness or maybe they've gone through a divorce and maybe they've had a com- combination of some health issues and all of a sudden they're in pretty bad shape. Some of whom doesn't have don't have don't have any paperwork from the VA, and the VA can only help them if they have paperwork. So there's a gap there that needs to be filled, and the VEO does that uh, with serving several hundred veterans a year, and it is deeply uh, therapeutic and beneficial to me to serve them. And not everyone's life is transformed completely, but all of them are helped. And every now and then, uh, I'll meet a guy and talk to a guy. There's, we serve women with children too, and which is that's another whole other topic. But uh, every now and then I'll meet and talk to someone who, in a very short period of time, his life has actually turned around significantly uh, through what the VEO has done for for him, um, and sometimes for her. And uh, I got to tell you, a little of that goes a long way. So it's, yeah, it's huge. I, uh, I I changed careers to help to spend all my time here, just about. So it's yeah, it's pretty pretty significant. Well, uh, in one of your emails to me, as we prepared for the show, uh, I want to read this to the folks. You wrote, "I'd like to make sure I cover what I do to make a positive impact on other veterans and why slash how that is so beneficial, therapeutic to me." mainly because that could help a veteran who is listening and encourage him or her to do the same. We're almost out of time here, uh, uh, John, but you want to expand on that a little bit? Well, that says it right there. I mean, the fact is, um, I know veterans, uh, and I know you do too, Pete, and they pretty much focus on what's in it for me. done my bit, I'm done. And i got to tell you, there is so much more to life um, than, than just taking care of yourself. And nothing resonates more deeply, especially a veteran who has served in harm's way, than to reach out and serve, help another veteran. Nothing resonates more positively, more deeply than that. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening.